Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Alfa Romeo Driver Podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick and with me this afternoon I have Arock Virtual Racer and Arca 4C Racer, Mike Hilton, and his partner in a project to bring a very special racing alpha back to the track, Andrew Bergbaum. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, Andrew, we'll come to you shortly. I, j- I just wanted to start with with Mike. Some of our members will know Mike through our virtual racing series that he participated in over the last couple of years. But I, I know, Mike, you have quite a, an interesting um, alpha stable. So just as we traditionally start these podcasts with our members' ownership history, just tell us how you got involved with with alpha and, and how you've ended up with the collection that you've got. Yeah, well, I'm probably a little bit untypical, let's say, in, t- in terms of the way I've came into alpha and I did test drive quite a few in the 90s and 2000s, but was never brave enough to uh, push the button. So um, my first alpha was actually in 2014 when I bought an HC Spider, which is probably uh, quite an unusual way to come into the brand. But I'd always had my eye on the HC as a car that I would own and, and, and keep for life if it was possible. So that was an absolute dream for me. And uh, sorry, that was my first toehold into the world of alpha ownership. And then I bought the Julia Cotafogo Airing which I absolutely loved. And that got me interested in the whole Julia culture and, and, and the history. I've subsequently gone on to uh, replace the Emring with the new GTA, which uh, again, for me, is going to be a, a keeper. I've also got a couple of other alphas, which you run in the family, the, the Mito and the Julieta, the workhorses for my daughters. And then most recently, I, I bought uh, a 4C race car in October last year and have started to race that. We'll race it again this year. And then, of course, there's the uh, the historic GTA, which I share with uh, with Andrew here. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that car in a, in a lot more detail in a minute. Well, until the Tonale launch, you only needed a Stelvio, and you'd have you'd have had every model that Alfa's had in the last ten years or so. Yeah, I did think about the Stelvio actually. I bought a, a Levante Maserati Levante and regretted it, but I, uh, I I drove the Stelvio out in Italy on a test day round cones and through water. It was a fabulous car. I wish I, I wish I bought one to be honest with you. I think that one's probably going to pass me by. Yeah. And the uh, the GTA, which I saw at Brands Hatch a couple of months ago, is uh, is the full aero pack. So it looks like a GTA M to the uninitiated or to anybody who hasn't peered in the back. Yeah, GTA with uh, aero. So it's got the uh, outside of GTA M and the inside of GTA. So it is practical. It does get driven a lot. Yeah, it's it's, it's fantastic. I took it down to Goodwood at the weekend with a bunch of other uh, Julia Quadrifoglios in a road trip. So um, I guess driven in the winter and uh, I look forward to many happy miles in that car. Yeah, it looks like you and Alan Greenhold, who's also been on the podcast, might be vying for for the highest mileage GTA, GTA M in the country. Yeah, I know Alan well. We've done several uh, trips out. So yeah. Brilliant. So, so that's the the road cars out of the way, and 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 not a bad. Uh, normally, at the end of the podcast, I ask people what they're well, the the one alpha that they don't own that they'd love to own is and and you've just given a list of the cars that people normally uh, say that they would they would like to add to their stable so we we might come back to that and see if there's there's anything else there let's get on to racing so we got to know each other through the the virtual racing again racing's not something you've been doing for a long time is it how how did you get into to racing and what's the the career been so far so the logic there was i love driving i love sports cars but the roads where i live in surrey are absolutely terrible full of speed cameras and potholes and i didn't think it was safe or legal for me to push in the cars so i happened to hear about the katem academy and thought it sounded like a great idea because there'd be 50 complete novices on the grid and everybody's beginning at the same time so i signed up for that 
having never sat in a caterer in my life and then instantly regretted it when it turned up and saw the size of it and how uh, snatchy they are. So that was in 2020. And that's how I really got into racing. I, I very much an accidental racing driver with no background in karting, done a couple of track days and I'm quite risk averse actually. And I'm, I, I started at the age of 50 uh, with, with absolutely no uh, no experience. And, and Andrew, is that where you uh, came across each other? That's exactly where we came across each other. It was uh, uh, like fate on a track and uh, and a number of us of a similar sort of background and age very quickly formed a, a group of friends that, that in fact led to uh, where we are sitting here today with the GTA. But uh, We'll keep going on that conversation as we explain how we got there. Yeah. And so I, I guess the obvious question that half of our listeners will be Googling already is, is how did you do against each other in the catering series? I think it's probably been pretty equal. Actually, in the first year in the academy, I was in the white group and you was in the green group. So we didn't actually race each other until the final race of the year when the groups merged. Um, but I think we're, we both started off towards the back. and We both ended up in the front half. And so significant improvement. But the, you know, the front of the grid is dominated by people who are taking it very seriously and who've got experience. And I think, you know, I, I think we did the best we, we could have done. And then in the last couple of seasons, it's probably been pretty equal, actually, you know, I, I say that neither of us have blown the lights out in terms of the uh, um, where we finished in the grid, but we've had great fun and we tend to race very closely with each other. And so far, we've avoided knocking into each other, which is a good sign. And there's a good bunch of guys as well, which I think is the real crux of racing is the paddock that we we were part of and the friends that we've made are just fantastic. And of course, that expands into other race series as well as, as people decide that they're going to leave the academy and go and do something else. Yeah, and it does seem to go one of two ways, doesn't it? There seem to be people who've, who've driven caterums forever and are just completely into the whole catering racing scene. And then people use that as a as a stepping stone to, to go and do other things. I think that's right. I think for me, I'm aware that I've probably not got 20 years racing ahead of me. So I want to try and experience as much as I can. I think uh, three years in coaching was, was great fun. We started off with a sort of goofy road car and ended up with quite a fast road uh, racing car because it gets upgraded each season. But it gets more and more serious as you go up the ladder. So at each sort of point, people do drop off and go off and do other things. And that's what Andrew and I have decided to do um, with, with the Alphas. We had Roberto Giordanelli on the podcast two episodes ago, who you may know from Auto Italia as one of their test drivers, and he's still racing at 70. So you might get close to that 20 <laughs> more years if you if you stick at it. He's got no no plans to retire. I think he said a man's only as old as his lap time. Yeah, I think he probably started at 15, though. That's the difference. <laughs> he did start a little bit before 50, yeah. That's, yeah, exactly. That, that, that is true. Yeah. We mentioned the GTA uh, a couple of times in passing. We'll talk about how you two came together to to buy it but tell us a bit about the car and 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 its history because it's it's not just a gta is it no no it's not in fact it's a gta that raced in the in the 66 monza very famously and finished fourth it was also one of only four white jolly cub gtas that were actually raced as part of auto delta which as far as we're concerned as far as we can see we've got the only one that's left of that uh, that original four it has a race history of uh, at the moment we've got documented photographic proof of 19 exceptional races including a couple of wins and the more that we find out about the car the more excited we we continue to get about it its history and, and i think and the uh, you know the alpha museum uh, are also helping us with this i think there's probably more races still to find as we keep doing 
doing our research. I don't know a huge amount about the cars, but from my understanding, there was there were the works Alpha Corsa cars, and then things like the Jolly Club cars were effectively semi-works. They were very close to Auto Delta and mm-hmm. and received a, a substantial amount of support from the factory. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, in this case, they were um, specifically raced as Auto Delta, and if you look on the race cards, you will see that these particular cars, especially ours, was raced as a Auto Delta car in a few of those right. races. So in 66, it looks like it was indistinguishable how they were treated. And in fact, we, we believe that the four were actually treated as the stable of Auto Auto Delta. So just Jolly Club funding for some of the cars. Quite right. And when you look at the drivers, they circulated the drivers, Auto Delta and Jolly Club. Um, and so we look at the, the cards where we see who drove our car in which race. They're totally, totally circulated all around, including uh, Guinty and Pinto and, and uh, Slopemaker and other very famous drivers of that, that age. So that the Monza race was probably its its best result from from what I've seen. Um, what do we know happened to the car after '66? Monza is fourth. It it did have a couple of other places a bit higher up. I think it was second in uh, one fun two, which was all, um, also a stage of the European Tour and Car Championships. And then later on, I think it did it did win a couple of races. But we what we know is that it was crashed on the the Nurburgring Neuschleifer in the. European Touring Car Championship round in practice. So Auto Delta sent three cars out there. Two of them were crashed in practice, including one of ours, and only one of the cars uh, competed. At the time, it was a public road, so relatively limited the amount of practice you can do. And these Italian drivers had never driven there, so they're really pushing it. The car at, at that point then was rebuilt and carried on racing for another year or so. And then in 1968, it was completely rebuilt again by Conrero, who was a very famous tuner for Alfa Romeo in the 50s and 60s, and then went on to work of Opel in the late 60s and 70s. So it became a Conrero Jolly Club car and was competing against Auto Delta. At that point in time, the Jolly Club and Auto Delta had kind of drifted apart and become sort of competitors. And Jolly Club was one of the biggest privateer teams in Italy, went on into the 70s, 80s, 90s, have great success in rallying with people like Carla Sainz, the Delta Integrale. It's probably more famously known for its rallying than it is for its racing. But prior to Auto Delta coming into being in 63, I think, the Jolly Club was the main way that uh, alpha cars were raced or the, certainly the, the, the road going cars were raced uh, in Italy at the time was through Jolly Club and at the end of its racing career which I guess would have been in, just about into the 70s do we know what happened to the car after that so we know in 72 it was sold we've got uh, Italian registration documents which Andrew uh, managed to extract from the uh, Italian authorities with a handwritten <laughs> uh, logbook showing you who bought it and, and how much they paid for it so it's uh, an interesting history of passing through various housewives in, in uh, small towns in Italy and through a receivership and ultimately we think it raced on until around 1980 and the, the car was sold in an auction in 2002 brought to the UK and still carrying a livery uh, that it raced in, in in the late 70s so the next stage of our tracing if you like is to fill the gap in from 72 when it was sold by Jolly Club into the sort of rate the final races in in the late 70s early 80s I imagine it was a probably a very much a battered club racing car at that time nothing special you know not not being valued for the history of being on the, the grid at Monza for that f- famous race in March 66 uh, with 100,000 people watching. It's just a, a tool for people enjoying themselves. So by the time it finished its life, it had large p- parts of its uh, body and uh, chopped out to reduce the weight. You know, it was running on slicks with wide wings, etc., and looked very different from how it uh, raced in, in, in 66 in the very pure GTA form. Yeah, it hadn't had the full GTA M wide body treatment that a lot of the, the earlier cars had. 
had in the, the early 70s, had it? I think it had the wider wings, but not necessarily the the full build out that some of them had. But we don't know at this stage because we're still in the process of filling in the blanks in that sort of six year period as to exactly what format it raced in. But we we, we think we certainly, the, the way it was in 2002 was the way it ended in the 70s and it, it, it had wider wings and, and slicks. And it arrived in the UK in 2002. What, what happened here between between its arrival and, and you guys getting involved? Not a great deal. It was bought by uh, someone who was very passionate about Alphas, who was, was known to be, to work on, on the cars. Um, and it, a restoration was begun and installed shortly afterwards. So it sort of sat for 18 years. So the, the, I think the working assumption is that Andrew and I have is that it hasn't turned a wheel until we got it on the uh, on the track end of last year for about 40 years. Okay. So that brings us to the next step in it, its journey, which is how did you guys come to decide to buy a 50-year-old GTA between you? <laughs> I'll say from my perspective, then Andrew can uh, give his his perspective. But I was looking to do something to do outside of Caterham's, and I've always been interested in Alpha and the history of Alpha Romeo and the, the sort of passion that it brings. And I I own the Julia M Ring, which is a spectacular car. And from that, I started researching the you know, the original Julia GTAs and and uh, having attended Goodwood several times and saw these cars in action in the in the paddock. For me, that was the, the an absolute dream to own one. And if we could find one that had some racing history, then that would be you know. Uh, a huge thing for us. So uh, that was my idea. And then I realized how much it was going to cost. And so I, I mentioned it to Andrew and said, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And he rather uh, uh, quickly decided that it might be a good idea for him to partner up with me. So, And you, you obviously haven't changed your mind yet, Andrew. No, I haven't. And <laughs> as drivers tend to do, Mike and I were attending a, uh, a London Gentleman Racers evening. And one of the things that we were doing was going around the table saying, you know, which car would you love to race? And as we went around the table, and, and Mike and I, we, we've probably known each other for about a year at that point. So we're still getting getting to know each other. But we went around the table and I think I went first and said, you know, I'd love to, to race an original. GTA. And Mike's reaction to that conversation was almost like finding a kindred spirit. And, you know, I think at first we we both thought each was joking that that was the car that they wanted. And over the, the series of a couple of conversations, we both realized that both were deadly serious. And we started our journey of trying to find one, a rather long journey, I have to say, of trying to find one, which ended up with finding ourselves in a warehouse garage, looking at this thing that was under a blanket before, and then, and then having some very serious conversations on the journey home. And... Mike said at the beginning of the conversation that the uh, his his first alpha was slightly unusual as an introduction to the mark being a, a an eight C spider. But this is is your first alpha, I believe. It is. I've I've always wanted alphas, and I've 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 owned, owned plenty of performance cars, but I've never actually had the opportunity to do it. And yet, for some reason, I, I asked myself why that happened to be that a sixty six GTA was the very first one that I ever bought. I, I doubt it will be the last one I ever buy. So you went to the warehouse, you did the deal. How far? was the car that you purchased away from being a car ready to race in time or effort. It's fair to say that it looked like a car that you could probably drive out, but the reality was it hadn't turned a wheel in 40 years and it was a partial restoration. So Andrew and I uh, were both very analytical when it comes to our sort of business heads. So we did our sums and we took a very, uh, let's say, a risk-averse view of what it was going to cost to get the car properly on track with full race capability. So that would mean a, a new engine, gearbox, et cetera, et cetera. So effectively, what we bought was a, a car 
that had a lot of storage ETA parts. We were very quickly told by people who far more experienced than we have of building historic race cars that you can't race on a 60-year-old engine or a 60-year-old gearbox. So we had to effectively use things like the casings and as much as we could, but for a large part, the mechanicals of the car were had to be brought new. We also had to do significant amount of body work as well on the on the car. Aluminium body means the wings are very expensive and they're all going to be manually fitted. So there is no cheap way of doing a, a GTA, unlike a, something like an E-Type or a Lowe's Cortina, where you can build one relatively cheaply because the parts are available. And, and I would say multiply the cost by three when it comes to building a GTA compared to what you would do with an, a normal historic race car. So we had our eyes open in terms of cost. I think time, we underestimate how long it would take. I think that was the biggest mistake. We had hoped to get it on the grid towards the beginning of last season. We, we only managed to get it on the grid right at the very end. And it's got a new engine, new gearbox, new bodywork. How much of the car that was in that workshop is on the grid for the races now? The entire chassis, the roof, pillars, and then a, a very large cabinet full of the original parts, which which doesn't sit on the racetrack, including the engine, obviously, which is sitting on a pallet at the moment. Probably won't be turned over unless we decide that we want to get that one moving too. I guess if it ever ends up in a museum, it could end up in a museum with all the original bits refitted, or some of the original bits refitted. But we were keen to keep as much as we can. So the chrome, a lot of the chrome around the doors is, is the original. The, uh, the step plates are all original and we, we wanted to keep keep all of those. A gear knob, but all of the other parts, you know, the seals were, were rotten as, a, as you can expect. The glass had to be replaced everywhere because of the plexiglass. Basically, you couldn't see through it. But we've kept everything, including the original brakes, including uh, the drivetrain components, really because we didn't want to throw away. It's got so much history. We wanted to keep it. Mike's got the Cronrero bonnet uh, on his wall. <laughs> we did tic-tac-toe and he won. So, so he's got he's got that one there, which is fantastic when you see what they did to lightweight these vehicles, taking away all of the support. You can bend it with your hands. So, so there's lots of bits and pieces that we've got around the relative garages with, with the original components. The car itself that we race, we decided not to cut any corners. And so we have uh, what we think is a is a fantastic, uh, fantastic end product. So we said earlier on, it's had one race outing so far in October. How close to the wire was, uh, was it getting ready for that race? I think it's fair to say it wasn't ready for that race. <laughs> However, it was it was a great way of shaking it down and realizing what some of the, the, the niggles were in, in putting it together and, and then using you know the winter season really to put some of those things right. So as Mike says, it took a little bit longer than necessary. And I would say arguably we're still in a little bit in shakedown mode. But a lot of the big stuff I think we've managed to iron out. And when it when it works, it's a it's a total dream. And what were the niggly problems that you had in the first race? Because I think you, you finished, didn't you? We finished. I think a couple of laps behind because we had a misfire in the engine that, that was intermittent and, uh, and we got to the point of being overtaken by cars with 50 horsepower less than us. Clearly something uh, something was wrong. Had a great start, but that was about it. And we've had a few issues with brakes and uh, and with gearbox. Nothing kind of that you wouldn't expect as you're shaking down a brand new restoration. But, you know, Touchwood will be uh, will be firmly on the grid in the HRDC. I think March is our first first outing with it, but we'll be doing some some track days and test days before that. So is, that, is the plan to do the whole HRDC season or dip in and out of that? We're going to try and do as much as we can and we're going to try and also go for some of the other events that it's um, it's eligible for and as, as you can imagine it's eligible for quite a lot. Yeah. So picking and choosing what we're going to do is is going to be quite important and of course Mike has a 4C to uh, to race and win with so uh, we just have to make sure we balance properly. We'll, we'll, we'll hold him to that race and win shall we? We certainly shall. <laughs> Okay, we talked about the HRDC and and maybe some other events 
that it's eligible for. Any particular events in mind? So if, if people are planning uh, which historic events they're going to, to go to this year, where, where do you think you're most likely to pop up? We don't want to tempt fate by uh, thinking that we you know turn up with this car and you know suddenly be in front of the grid and be winning things. Not, uh, neither Andrew or I have driven historic cars before. So quite a lot of learning to do on our behalf. And I think we're really, really aware that we're entering a, a new world. And I think we're pretty humbled by the, the experience of driving this car. And so we're going to take it relatively easily. So as uh, Andrew mentioned, HRDC, we may enter it for Silverstone Classic, which is probably the biggest one this year. But again, we wouldn't necessarily expect to be up at the sharp end of the grid. Although I think the car, given it's got a brand new race engine, which is putting out about 180 horsepower and it is properly set up, it should be competitive. But I think Andrew and I probably need some seat time before we can well, if you, uh, take if you could aim to it. be just behind the Banks brothers in uh, yeah, Silverstone Classic, yeah, actually. I think I've heard of them. I think they've got a little bit more experience than us. <laughs> yeah, just a tad. Just a tad, yeah. And then the other thing that we're considering doing, and at the moment is it is a dream, is the Modena Oro Centro, which is in October, which is a, a road rally uh, in Italy, which you also end up racing on tracks as well. So that looks pretty amazing. It's a bucket list event. We need to get the car road registered, which is the biggest barrier at the moment. We've got the Italian plate, we've got the Italian registration documents, but there's probably 40 years worth of back registration fees to pay. And then, then the <laughs> issue is also UK registration is considering that. So yeah, uh, that's the uh, that's the biggest uh, question mark over that. But I'm sure we'll we'll look to do other things. And then next year, you know, potentially, I think we could look at Goodwood if we were invited or uh, carry on HRCC and, and maybe do some Masters races. So there's a whole host of events that we can do. It's really about calendars and making sure also that you know the car is being well maintained and has enough time for maintenance and, and spannering between races. Yeah, I guess the other issue with Goodwood is what era they're focusing on. The St Mary's sort of flips between 50s and 60s cars, doesn't it? Yeah, I think this year it's 50s again. So we had the GTAs out last year. Uh, there was two, two yep. over from Germany did very well. And I think it's it will be 2024. It will be the, the 1960s pre-66 touring cars again. Yeah, okay. That'll be good, something to look forward to. I think for me, seeing it arrive at Silverstone on the Thursday before the race weekend, and I arrived and it was in the garage and it was sitting there fully finished and couldn't quite believe it because Andrew and I had visited the workshop and it was Westbourne Motorsport that built it two weeks before and it was still a shelf. It was still in bits. We both concluded that there was no way it was going to be ready in time. And those guys absolutely killed themselves to get it ready for the, for the grid. And we had it down there on Thursday. It was still dark when we arrived. And so I'll never forget actually walking into the garage and seeing it. And, and Andrew was there with me and we both just looked at each other. And it felt, you know, like a very long journey. It was a year since we bought the car and, you know, we'd been heavily involved in, in its development. And actually seeing it there was was pretty magical. And then Andrew hopped in and we drove it around the car park and managed to stall it a lot because of the racing clutch and racing gearbox. And then we took it out in the pouring rain and, and realized actually they're quite difficult to drive in the wet. But the sound of the engine for me is just a phenomenal. You know, it revs up to 9,000. And hearing that engine when it's a you know full chaff, the exhaust is a side exhaust beneath the driver's seat. So the sound is absolutely glorious. And we were able to run it on silenced at Silverstone on that test day. And I'll never forget that. The sort of 15 minutes the first session had out driving that car on my own. It was a huge smile on my face. And it's something that you never get from a Caterham, which is just a tool. It's a very, very good track car, but it's you never get that sense of emotion and connection. From a driving perspective, you both come from Caterham, so you've got that common experience. What are the biggest differences driving the GTA to driving the Caterham? Well, I'll say the first one, and then Andrew can add his. I'd say the first one is 
a roof, which is actually quite important when it's pouring down in the assembly area. So that's a huge plus for us coach and drivers to be dry. Oh, I think there's so many. The um, the way that the uh, the gearbox feels with the very long throw, the way the car slips around all over the place as it tries to grip it. Obviously, a caterham is quite pointy, but the car is, you know, with 180 brake horsepower is no slouch. So we're getting up to and beyond, in some cases, the speeds that we were getting up with caterham. So the speed is there that the total way the car drifts is fundamentally different. And and then the sound with the gearbox, you, you, you know you're driving something very different and very special when you sit in it. And as Mike said, the caterham feels like a professional tool by comparison. I think my experience of driving it for the very first time, my heart was beating really fast. I had a smile that went from ear to ear, made all the better that you know we'd been on that very long journey to get there. And this really was the culmination of all of that hard work and passion. So just a lovely thing to be able to, to do in one's life, take it, take a car that was you know, unturned for 40 years and turn it into something that can hoon around a, a racetrack like an idiot, getting sideways and, and just basically having lots and lots of laughs. Yeah, I can certainly relate to the Caterham roof thing. The only time I've driven one in anger was years ago at a Jonathan Barmer track experience day where they did a kind of figure of eight course with it. I did it once in the pouring rain and it was like driving for 20 minutes in a cold bath. It's not a pleasant experience. Yeah, yeah. Still still fun, but not fun when it stopped. The the worst bit was the academy because you have a windscreen. So what would happen is the the rain would actually come on the inside of the windscreen. You'd have these little comedy wipers, which would just about clear the outside. But then you'd realize that actually there was still drops all over your windscreen. You realize it's on the inside. So when you were racing, you'd have to carry a towel between your legs. And on the straights, you'd have to try and clean the windscreen with it. And then the assembly area, you would just get absolutely soaked sitting there for 25 minutes. So you'd drill holes in the bottom of the floor to let the water drain out. Otherwise, it would just slosh around in the car. So having a roof is a big bonus. We've got a lot of experience now driving in the wet because it rained for the four days that we had the car out or in that Silverstone weekend, the testing. We haven't actually driven it in the dry yet, but we do know that uh, if you can't heel toe, you're absolutely done for in the in the GTA because the diff just locks up and uh, in the wet, you will just spin. So Andrew and I had that experience at Silverstone at the end of the straight, uh, changing down from five to three and just uh, both of us just managed to, to lock the car up and, and go sideways and I'd say it's easier to control than a Caterham because when it goes, it's it's a bit more progressive. Caterham's are very snappy, but they're both rear-wheel drive. I think the lap times should be equivalent to an Academy car because the power to weight is not too dissimilar. The GTA is 100, let's say 180, 185 horsepower, 750 kilos. Caterham is 130 uh, horsepower on 550 kilos. So, so there's some parts which are quite familiar in terms of the speed. I think the, the biggest difference is the brakes or lack of because these are the original single caliper Dunlop brakes, which nobody in the right mind would really put on to a Julia race car today unless you want it to be period correct with the appendix K rules. So we've got terrible brakes. So I'd come in and say, I'd, I think the brakes, I don't think they're working. And I'm like, no, you just got to push harder. It's like, I can't push any harder. It, it, there are no brakes. <laughs> and that's how it is. So about half the braking is done through engine braking and downshifting. But I think there's something we're going to have to get used to is the brake points are very different from what we're used to with the K-trims where we could brake super late. With this, you, you've got to be on them quite early or you will just fly off the end of the track. Okay, well, we very much look forward to seeing it out on track during the, the course of the year in the dry, hopefully, at least a couple of times. We should get at least a couple of dry meetings in a UK season-long calendar. Let so, us hope. 
There's no yeah. guarantee. <laughs> but um, it does bring me on quite nicely to your debut in the 4C, Mike, which was, it had stopped raining, but, but it was still quite damp, wasn't it? Yeah. So rather on a whim, I bought a 4C race car, which hadn't actually raced, but had been prepared, I think, in 2019 by another Alpha race driver. And that came about because I was in Verano at the Alpha Julia Driving School, which is run by Andrea Giadamich's son. And I had a really great time driving the Julia on track. I'd never driven the Quadrifog on track match before and with instructors and they also took us around in four C's and I just absolutely loved the full C on track and thought it was an incredible little machine even in its stock form with a mid-engine 235 horsepower and I came back and it kind of stayed with me that I thought this would be a great car to actually take on a track and I love the Alpine for example I love those uh, the sort of light mid-engine cars Lotuses etc so I remember reading in the Alpha magazine about this black full C that was going to race and didn't race and then I thought I wonder if it's still out there because my research shows there aren't any uh, 4C race cars anywhere in the world. And the biggest factor there is uh, cost and the carbon tub makes it very difficult. Things like roll cages. And if you're going to do it, just, just buy a Lotus. It's all off the shelf. The whole, it's, it's just very, very mainstream to build a Lotus race car. So I like to be different in some ways. So I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe we can race this 4C. Maybe I can track it down. So I called the various race teams and reached out to people and then found it at, at Bianco with Paul Plant. So I went down there. It was up on the, the racks. It sat there for two years. It was covered in dirt. And I asked him if it would be possible to contact the owner, a, a really, really great guy called Ricardo, who I'm in constant contact with since I bought the car. He agreed that he would sell it and he's actually going to be racing the Alpha Workshop Mito, two litre Mito against me this year. So that's going to be interesting. Which is the same engine as the 4C, but with an extra 250cc. Exactly. And that thing is going to be quick. So I bought it at the end of September and then Paul is quite persistent for people who know him. And he said, oh, you've, you've got to race at Alton Park. And I felt usually underprepared, having not really been to that track other than in the first race the Caterham Academy where it rained so much that I was almost too terrified to drive but I thought okay let's do it we went up there it rained the whole of the test day so I'd had hardly any seat time in the car and, and we talked about the differences between the, the Julia and the um, and the Caterham but you've now got a semi-automatic gearbox and aero and, yeah. uh, and a whole bunch of other things you've never done before totally different and most importantly traction control and ABS which actually means that in the wet it is a bit of a monster and it is a very, very fast car in the wet because of those aids, which you can take advantage of. In fact, it's mid-engine. Yeah, I qualified on pole, which was unexpected, I have to say, and then had the lead crew out on track of the formation lap, which is something I never really thought about before. And that was your first time out in the dry, although... Yeah, so the race was... Dry dry is a slight exaggeration. I think it was still quite... Quite damp, wasn't race it? Race was dry. Qualifying was damp, very damp. Yeah, and so I was on pole with Paul Plant in the Julieta next to me uh, in second. And I probably had a great start because the, the force has got launch control. So I was about three cars clear at the first corner and then promptly forgot to turn. So I went wide and Paul overtook me. So I pulled myself together and said, okay, well, we, you know, we, we can still get a podium here. And then unfortunately, the steering wheel started playing up so I couldn't get it into fourth gear. So I got stuck in third, doing about 80 mile an hour and then saw another two cars go past me before eventually the gearbox flip back into fourth and that's where I stayed so not a bad start my best ever finish in any race so I can't complain but hopefully this season car will avoid those types of issues and you know, we can we can push for a podium in a couple of races but it's going to be stiff competition I think because as I mentioned Ricardo's going to be running in the Mito I think there's already a couple of the very fast cars out there ex-touring cars etc uh, potentially due to Quadrifoglio so it'll be a very very good grade at the modified end 4C itself is it is heavily modified we're putting in a new suspension which we, which we 
we poured new coilovers, pole bars, but we'll run on slicks. You have to drive a car on slicks, so that's going to be interesting. It's got a lot of aero and it's got an upgraded turbo. So it puts out about 320 horsepower now compared to 235, I think, in stock. So it's pretty quick. Uh, it's certainly quicker than the, the caterer I'm used to. And it's pretty exciting driving the absolute polar opposite of the GTA. So it's going to be quite a, an interesting season for me flipping between those two cars. You know, one weekend in this flappy paddled uh, car with aero and slicks and then the next weekend driving 1960s touring car on historic Dunlops. So it sounds like you'll be hoping for wet weather every other weekend and dry dry in between. Yeah, I think I definitely don't want wet in the DTA because my heel toe is agricultural, let's say. And I think I would definitely be happy with rain in the in the 4C because I'll be running on racing wets as well, apparently. Yet to see them, but Paul uh, Bianco tells me they're amazing. So with those on, it, it's almost like driving in the dry. So that will be uh, interesting. But I, I was stood at the exit from turn one at Alton um, in qualifying and everybody else was struggling to, to keep it on the tarmac as they came out turn one mm-hmm. and the 4C just looked completely planted yeah yeah it, it, and that was on uh, I think I was on road tyres I think I was on pilot sports yeah, it just felt really good I have hardly any experience in that track or the car but I think the, the balance of the cars are really good and I think having the ABS is, is also really helpful as well to avoid the lockups and things like that and definitely aero helps give you more downforce give you the grip but yeah I think we were Paul and I were five seconds ahead of third place in qualifying which is you know a massive margin in, but you know both those cars benefiting from the, the sort of DNA system I ran with it in uh, in end mode to uh, you know to make the most uh, of the traction control. Yeah, and again, Paul had the the same engine pulling his Julietta along, didn't he? Yeah, pretty similar horsepower, a bit more weight. Yeah, yeah. But Paul is definitely a better driver than I am. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, I just um, again from from racing against him in the the virtual racing. Just just be careful the first time you come up against Paul going into a corner. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I say I went off the track to it, it, Paul, Paul. Paul will take the line. Paul wants to yeah, take. Yeah, I didn't give him a chance to be honest. I screwed up so much on the first corner that he'd gone past me and I didn't see him again but yeah I think uh, hopefully I'll give him a much better race going forward but he's a very very experienced racer he's, he's very quick yeah he's quick and I think you know we don't we we did learn a lot in catering I think I think the standard in catering is very very high so as we come over to club racing you know I'm hopeful that actually uh, you know, we can put some of that uh, racing experience into good use uh, but also aware that you know there's a lot of people on the grid who race for 10, 15, 20 years have had a lot of success and that, that you know that experience is something that both Andrew and I need to build I think over the coming years brilliant well look, I'm looking forward to seeing you out in both cars and to meeting you in person at one of the races during the course of the year, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both this afternoon. Readers of the magazine, uh, Mike's going to do a feature on the GTA, which will be in our February issue. Um, and then either in April or June, we're going to do a big feature on the the 4C's 10th anniversary and, and the 4C race car will be featured in that. So you'll be able to keep track of uh, of the racing progress in, in competition corner in the magazine and find out a bit more about the two cars in the in the coming issues. But an absolute pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Guy. Good to speak with you, Guy. Well, that's it for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Sunday the 12th of February when I'll be speaking to 159 registrar Jim Rastel. Episode 74 will be available to download from 1.30pm from the club's website, YouTube, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else good podcasts are found. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>